Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. Welcome to our latest show. This month, our reviews include Old, The Suicide Squad and the film I campaigned hard for, (laughs) Dross Level. (laughs) After that, some great news. I'm presenting the quiz this month. Don't say you haven't been warned, listeners. Coming up later in the show, we have a big announcement about Darren's Dash for you. Stay tuned for that one. As always, we have a shout-out for our Listener of the Month. This month, we say hello to Nick over in the US of A, a family member who avidly listens to our show. I bet neither Jeff nor Neil can top that. Thanks for all your support and suggestions, Nick. They are very much appreciated. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Now, it may surprise you to learn, listeners, and possibly you, Nick, that we actually discuss movies amongst ourselves before we get together for these review recordings. I know, it's novel, isn't it? Now, most of the time we agree, except, of course, when the Church of Marvel is being worshipped, or Graham is going on and on about the Mel's latest masterpiece, as he calls it. However, recently there was a conversation about a topic which actually shocked me. Yeah, me. You see, I believe that Clint Eastwood's movies since winning the Oscar for Million Dollar Baby are amongst the most interesting and intellectually stimulating coming out of American cinema this century. Each reflects different aspects of the man, the legend, and his musings on mortality. Let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate my point. J. Edgar is about legacy. How do people remember us? Sully? The 1517 to Paris and American Sniper are about the qualities that make American heroes. And the mule is a reflection on a life almost over. And how was it spent? Now, this is a director and now occasional actor who is making a Hemingway-esque body of work for us to review and ponder on when he is no longer with us. These are as important pieces of art as, say, the Mona Lisa. (laughs) Of course, when I tried explaining all of this to one member of the team, I was told it's just old man stuff, not very good or interesting at all. I'll not name that person, listeners. I don't want to shame them. But I promise to continue their education and hopefully one day have that breakthrough where they see the light. Now, another interesting facet of this later work from Clint is that he always has younger women as his partners or close friend. What do you think, Frank? Is that believable? Graham, your thoughts about the old Eclid Eastwood. Hi, my name is Graham and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. I never agree with Jeff, but on this one, I sort of agree. As a a younger old man myself, certainly younger than uh, Neil and Jeff, I think the important (laughs) issue that Clint raises in his films and I identify with closely such as The Mule. I also think we should look at the Mel's films in the same way. Fat Man, The Professor and the Madman, and Dragged Across Concrete have darkened my soul just as darkly as the topics he covers in those films. More timid actors tend to avoid these dark areas. Thank God. Leave it to Mel. That's true. (laughs) Hi, my name is Neil, and I'm just happy to see each Clint Eastwood film as it comes up, and I review them as I see them. It's not easy, this sitting on a fence, Lark. Hi, my name is Phil, and you can find out more about my film tastes via my blog page on the Phil the Bear blog at wordpress.com. 
And I think, Jeff, what I actually said about Clint Eastwood... Oh, was it you, Phil? No, <laughs> obviously not. <laughs> is whilst he is a legend, he seems to have made a series of incredibly mediocre films since Gran Torino, which could have been the perfect end to his career. I hardly think hereafter the 317 to Paris and the Mule should sit alongside the likes of Unforgiven, Mystic River, Letters from Iwo Jima or Million Dollar Baby. It doesn't make him less of a legend, but it does mean he has patchy parts of his career and I think he's currently in one. Ooh, well, listeners. That's a reasonable comment. Hi, I'm Darren, and if you want to know more about my wild, varied and weird movie tastes, you can follow me on Twitter at Dazza Loves Movie, and you can read my blogs at halfgarder.com. And also, just a little uh, plug, I've also been doing a bit of moonlighting uh, lately. I have the pleasure of being a guest on the Jaws for a Minute podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to exploring the, uh, the greatest film of all time, Jaws, one minute at a time. So I just want to say thank you to Sarah and MJ for having me on. I had an absolute blast in a more civilised podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Did they Jaws. talk about Clint? He should have been in Jaws, shouldn't he? Yeah, well, God, why, why don't you listen to the episode and find out, Jeff? I, I will, yeah. I know what you're thinking, Shark. Did he fire <laughs> six shots or only five? <laughs> Feeling lucky, Shark. What do you think, listeners? Is Clint Eastwood still a master filmmaker? Or are his powers, like Jeff's, starting to fade? What do you think, Nick? After all, he has made a couple of his recent movies not too far from where you live. Thanks, Graham. Well, the time has finally arrived. The new person has stepped forward to take the quiz. It's a little more upbeat, perhaps. <laughs> it can go downhill when I start the quiz. I will be upbeat. Yes, the man who is to golf, what Bodger Johnson is to honesty. <laughs> okay, no, no. Go back down again. <laughs> and, and Rob is the foreign holidays. I give you Neil. <laughs> but first, here is the answer to last month's question the team couldn't answer. What connects the following films? The Cotton Club, Fatal Attraction, and My Cousin Vinny. The answer is the fantastic actor that was once known for his starring role in The Munsters and who went on to have a great career as a character actor, the late, great Fred Gwynn. OK, Neil, over to you for the quiz. He has chosen the quiz theme music to be University Challenge. You guys are going to play together. There's a starter for ten. And then there's three questions on that subject that are uh, relevant to the first question. If you get the first question wrong, the whole lot goes to the audience. If you get an individual question, the listeners will only answer those individual ones. Hello and welcome to the quiz. This evening we have got Scumbag College, Jeff Graham, Phil and Darren, and against our listeners. Start of 10, no conferring. In The Matrix... Does Neo take the blue pill or the red pill? Blue. Wrong. <laughs> so these three questions go to the listeners. Who directed The Matrix? What is Neo's full name? And what colour was the dress worn by the lady in one of the training scenes? Start of 10, no conferring. Which university is Animal House set in? Uh, Delta. 
No. no that's the, the Soriety has. Is that your is answer? Because that's not a college. Anybody got it? No, I don't know the answer. Okay, these ones go to the listeners who directed Animal House. John Belushi plays Pluto, who plays Katie, and who wrote the music? Okay, it's going exceedingly well. Scumbag College, as usual, failing miserably. Start of a 10, no conferring. Which Studio Ghibli film won a Best Animated Film Oscar? Uh, if I was a betting man, I would go with Darren. Spirit, Spirit away. away. Correct. Yay. Three questions on Studio Ghibli. Which author adapted the movie script for Princess Mononoke? Neil Gaiman. Correct. Two directors and a producer founded Studio Ghibli. Hayao Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki. Who is the other director? I'm going to have Can to hurry you. my half-written article on thingy on my blog? No. <laughs> no. No, I'm going to have to hurry you. No. Incorrect. That goes to the audience. Uh, question three in the English language dubbed version of Howl's Moving Castle. Christian Who- well done. <laughs> that was quick. So, start of a 10, no conferring. Who directed Casablanca? Michael Curtis. Correct. What was the name of the bar slash nightclub in Casablanca? Rick's All American. Got to have the full name. You can Rick's All American Cafe. Cafe. It's not quite there, but it's almost there. Rich Cafe American. So I'll give you that one. Who played Captain Louis Renault? Uh, Claude Rains. Correct. And who played Sam? Julie Wilson. Correct. Bogart. I'm glad it was. uh, I listened to Jeff. (laughs) Don't often say that, do I? Uh, Start of a ten. No conferring. Who does Mel Gibson play in the Lethal Weapon movies? God. Riggs or Mercer? He's Riggs, isn't he? I need his full name. Riggs is his name. Yeah, what's his full name? Kyle Martin Riggs. Correct. Oh, oh, oh God. Nice, of course. We've got, course got that. Yes. Of course. You got an expert. <laughs> who, do, who does Mel Gibson play in Braveheart? William Wallace. William Wallace. Correct. Who directed the Mad Max films? The guy who did the Penguin films. George Miller. Miller. Correct. <laughs> Gibson has won two Oscars somehow. He also has an Oscar nomination to his name. What is it for? I forgot what the film's called, but I thought he got a nomination for that for directing that film with um, Andrew Garfield. Oh, something Ridge. Heartbreak Ridge. Is that your answer? Oh, yeah, that is the correct answer. It's Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, so I'll give you half. <laughs> the audience can have the other half. So, last question. Who directed Evil Dead 2? Sam Sam Raimi. Raimi. Correct. Who does Bruce Campbell play? And I want his full name, not just his nickname. It's Ash. Uh, Ash. Yeah. Yeah. What's his full name? I don't know. He's always called Ash. Yeah, he's not, but he's got a full name. The clue is in the question, Jeff. I'm going to have to hurry you. Nope. Okay, that one goes to our listeners. Uh, which writer did Sam Raimi turn to to get money for the film? Joel Cohen. No. Incorrect. Ethan uh, Cohen. No. You just keep saying Cohen Brothers. This is not going to work. <laughs> when Linda, played by Denise Bixler, bites Bruce Campbell's hand, what does he actually say? 
I mean, this is great coming from you, who's never seen anything remotely like I've horror, seen though. part of Evil Dead too. <laughs> part of it. <laughs> it's a great question. No? Well, that one goes to the listeners. I think this is going to be very close. And that is the end of the quiz. And we'll find out next month who wins, if the listeners can get all the answers to the other questions. Now, this is a heartfelt apology. I know on occasion Neil has been mistaken for Jeremy Paxton. But (laughs) I apologise, Mr Paxton. Please don't use... Don't use any of that sarcastic wit on us if ever you run into us. It was not my idea. <laughs> I got a lot of questions in there. Sure did. Thank you, Neil, for a different type of quiz. Very different. Now to the reviews. The first movie, like my thoughts on Clint Eastwood, has made me feel quite old. Wow. You believe I found this online? I guess it's not that secret a beast. What happened to her? Body has decomposed. How quickly can that happen? Seven years. But she just died. Wait, where are the kids? Trent, Kara! Come here! Hey, have you seen my children? Mom? I'm I'm right here. <laughs> Dad, why are you looking at me like that? What's happening to us? Oh no. We're here for a reason. The latest from writer-director M. Night Shyamalan, a man whose career was shaped by the mega-success of his third film, The Sixth Sense. This time, he's not gone for an original idea, instead basing his script on a French comic book called Sandcastle. The Kappa family cannot believe their luck. They've arrived in a tropical paradise to start the holiday of a lifetime and see Dominic Raab. The resort manager tells them of a secluded beach away from the main complex. As a special treat, the four Kappa family members are transported there along with a few other guests. On arrival, they find the beach is indeed truly magnificent. However, they also find it has a few surprises as they start to age rapidly and are unable to get away from the sumptuous location. Phil, does the master of the twist in the final reel manage to pull out some surprises here or is it just old hat? Surprises? No. Unless you fail to see any of the marketing material, there aren't any surprises. Old Hat? Also, no, but it is certainly a peculiar film. It's a mixture of body horror film, but it pulls its punches because it wants a certificate that can get lots of people in, so it's not really a proper horror film. It has some really, really terrible dialogue that consists of characters saying incredibly bizarre things or making wild leaps of logic just to keep the story pushing along. But it has a really, really intriguing central concept. There is a twist, because it is Shyamalan, um, but I didn't think it felt terribly earned, and frankly, it has really little impact on the film. So for me, it's just a trademark stamp from the director 
rather than having the sort of importance it does in some of his other films. The actors do a decent job of making the nonsense lines believable. The quote from Harrison Ford, which you probably can correct me on exactly, but he said something like, you may be able to write this shit, but you sure as hell can't say it, comes to (laughs) mind. Especially when Shyamalan does another awful cameo. Please, someone tell him to stop appearing in his own films. But, and this is a huge but, it is still entertaining. The central concept is so intriguing, I wanted to know what came next. I was gripped, I was intrigued, and I couldn't wait to find out what was going to happen. When I did find out, I'm not so sure I really cared. But in the moment, I enjoyed myself. So perhaps it's something I'm never likely to watch again, but it was enjoyable. And I'm sure there will be some of you out there who will enjoy it for just how unintentionally hilarious it is, especially if at any point you're trying to remember a particular film that has two certain actors in it. So, Phil, I mean, when this came out, there was a hell of a lot of downer on it from a lot of professional critics, although I count us as professional critics. Um, (laughs) But they really went to town on slamming this film. Your review isn't that bad. So do you think they missed the point on what was going on here? Um, I think it's one of those films that you will, depending on your sensibility and and the particular mood you're in, you are going to wildly swing between it being enjoyable hokum to it being absolute dross. Because some of the dialogue is awful. And some of the leaps of logic that they make to kind of keep the plot going forward is bonkers. And I think he's a better writer than this. And I know a lot of people probably do slate him a bit for that but this is more the happening than sixth sense but it's certainly a lot more enjoyable than that film okay fair enough graham yeah i thought it was just a wonderful surprise it's a great little gem of a film it should have been an episode of the twilight zone but it's stretched out to a feature length i enjoyed it i mean how many m night Shyamalan? films can you say that about i know i've been talking a lot on this show about how good it is to get back to the cinema but i don't think i would have enjoyed this any less if i'd watched it at home there's really is not a lot to talk about here it's a mystery wrapped in an enigma and it has a good resolution in this movie m night has got the suspension of disbelief just right i feel with a lot of his films you just they just end up being silly but this one treads the fine line between seriousness and, and nonsense perfectly i jumped i laughed at the right times which for an m night film is something of a challenge it's a fine friday night movie but as usual phil falling <laughs> back to to my enjoyment of the tomorrow war last month Check with Darren before you watch this film about the correct number of beers to have on a Friday night. Yeah, it was okay, but it's nothing more than a an episode of the Twilight Zone. I'd give it a you know two and a half out of five. Do you think it's better than After Earth? Then <laughs> yeah, just a bit, just a bit. Oh, yeah, well, I would. It sounds like you're not a big Shyamalan fan, though. No, no, I'm not. I mean, I loved The Sixth Sense. I actually enjoyed The Village. That, that the one he did after that. I thought that was quite good. But after that, he's gone downhill. But this I enjoyed. But that's about it. 
Strange how you haven't mentioned signs, that's all I'll say. Uh, <laughs> Neil. Like others, I'm sure I found it a disturbing watch. In parts, a profound statement on life, death and human frailties. In other parts, distinctly unsubtle. It was filmed during the height of COVID and lockdown and compromises must have been made and we should be applauding a director who tries something different. And old is a very interesting idea. Based on the graphic novels mentioned before, like the film Split Opinions, the uncomfortable scenes, the plot holes... An unsubtle reveal towards the end and an unnecessary final few minutes. Why don't you just leave it open? That said, it is interesting. I found the characters interesting. Gail Garcia and Bernal and Vicky Creeps play out their marriage in fast forward and they have the most tender moment of the film. The issues associated with adults growing old and known to many of us, well, Jeff anyway, and that was played out really well. Rufus Sewell was at his standard best and the children ageing was creepy but intriguing it's creepy as i said unsubtle and it sags a little in the middle but there is a real good film in there to enjoy okay so do you think the final twist went too far because it isn't in the original comic book it's a huge plot spoiler yes the bit where they come out and and say hey we've just survived it and then suddenly the police arrive it was all just too neat why didn't they just leave it open they could have had the bit where they go to the lab and say hey we've got a another cure possibly for um um what was it epilepsy epilepsy forgetfulness and (laughs) (laughs) there's no cure for that could have just left it at that and that would have been a really interesting question i mean it's a bit blunt and a bit unsubtle but yeah it could have been very interesting but then they just do this bit at the end okay silly darren yeah i I mean i had i came away out the theater from this feeling really weird about the film and i still you know for for a long time i didn't know where where i stood on a lot of the decisions made in it as a horror movie, I absolutely love the premise. I think it's a frightening concept that we can all relate to because we are all facing, you know, getting older as we go on. And I loved the stuff on the island. I actually loved the whole weirdness, how it used camera angles to make you feel really uncomfortable. There were times when you were basically just looking at a, you know, a massive amount of, of nothing on the screen. I, I thought it did that job really, really well. And I thought the build of it, the pace, it, it kept me intrigued as to what was going on. And I thought, for, you know, as a horror movie, it, it did that, re- you know, really, really well. And so to me, you know, attention was great and everything. What I mean, it's already been mentioned about the, the, the dialogue. And I have to say, that took me out of the movie quite a lot because... There were some very weird lines, some very, you know, like almost amateurish lines, I would say. If you, if you read these in a, in a novel, you'd be thinking, oh God, this, you know, this, you know, this is like sort of, you know, amateur hour. The weird thing as well is that the way the lines were being delivered, it, um, they were almost like wooden and, and odd. And I've seen a lot of the actors and actresses in this film in other stuff, and they're really good. And here, it wasn't just the lines that they were saying, they were just saying them in this really weird way. And actually, suspected and i've asked a few people about this if that was actually deliberate if the monotone way that they taught was another way of making you feel really uneasy but i did find it really distracting and it made me feel hard to relate to the characters because of that also the ending was weird i felt mixed about it because it was really satisfying 
that you got an explanation as to what was going on and wrapping everything up in a, in a nice little bow. But at the same time, I often wonder with horror movies, if you'd have been better leaving things open, but also giving you some clues as to what was going on, rather than having like this big speech and exposition explaining it all. If it was just basically you saw a few shots of sort of the medics at work and stuff and left it for yourself to piece these things together. So... But generally speaking, as a film, it was different. It it was weird. It was unlike any other film that I've sort of seen for a, a long time. And it was really, really creepy, even though some of the, the horror mo- moments later on felt a bit forced. But generally, it's a film that I came away thinking about. And the fact that the film is different, you know, that was something that I, I really appreciated. Okay, thank you. Right. Well, I've got a movie phobia. And old plays right into that for me and give me a real unease. Now, since I was a kid, I've always been slightly disturbed by films where you see a, a character's whole life play out from beginning to end in a running time of around two hours or so. So the first time I remember this happening was watching the 50s film The Egyptian on TV, which followed that character from a baby to the moment he dies at the end of the film, and it freaked me out. Now, in old M. Night Shyamalan's latest Twilight Zone-style movie, you have accelerated aging as the characters on this strange beach age one year every half an hour. So that really freaked me out. So given this phobia, this film was always going to be unsettling for me before he did anything. So, M. Night, you had me at aging. As for the film, he builds successfully on that theme of aging with more metaphysical elements. The beach's life, and how people react to it is how they deal with living. For example, the parents becoming old and eventually accepting their fate. So far, as I've only spoken about the metaphors within the story, is this story and construction any good? For the most part, yes, as we follow the assorted characters through the attempted escapes and the inevitable character breakdowns. It also helps having a great cast, including such fine actors as Vicky Kreps and Rufus Sewell, who's had a great year, really, from beating up old people to being a racist. Then there's the surprising change of style for Shyamalan, the director. Knowing he's essentially got one location, he keeps the camera moving to show the scope of the place. Now, normally in his films, he goes for long scenes, relying more on cutting the movement, and I think that change suits him well here. That, however, is in marked contrast to Shyamalan, the writer, who has one clunker of a plot exposition on top of all the dialogue issues that everybody else has mentioned. When he sticks to the source material, Sandcastle, all is well. But he's added an ending to explain much of what happens. To get to that ending, he has a cryptic clue to bridge the gap, which is just awful. Once we get past that, the ending, yeah, it's it's okay, it's interesting. And, and in these days of vaccine debate, something to ponder. So again, the metaphor improves over the actual script. Something to think about. That alone makes this one of M. Night's better efforts, and, hey, it's played on my irrational phobia of seeing people aging fast. It certainly unsettled me, like seeing Neil. Okay. An interesting start to this month's reviews. Overall, we are more positive than many of the critics have called this one. Old is still in the cinemas, and if you missed it, you'll be able to premium rent on streaming shortly. Moving on, let's look at the latest from Graham's Hero. Time to go full boss level. I used to complain that every day felt the same, and now every day is the same. Hey, Jay. I have died 144 times, 
And every day ends like this. But it doesn't matter. Not when you've lost everything you've loved. Venter, man who's had me killed 150 times. The power to rewrite history is mine. Heads up. I know everything that's gonna happen. One thing that never changes. What's up, pretty boy? Bunch of assholes killing me for reasons that remain a mystery. I am Guan Yin, and Guan Yin has done this. Someone's been the busiest little beaver. I'm stuck in the death loop because of you. Exactly. I'll start with a warning for Mel fans. Yes, this is directed at you, Graham. He is more of a supporting character in Boss Level, as the real star is The Frank, better known as Frank Grillo. Frank Grillo is Roy Pulver, a retired soldier who has a problem, a repeating problem. He's stuck in a time loop. Every day he wakes up as someone attacks him with a knife, escalating very quickly to a helicopter gunman trying to shoot him. If he manages to avoid those attempts, his day continues with more and more people trying to kill him, ultimately ending brutally at 12.47. Then Frank wakes up again and is subject to that knife attack. He has no idea how he ended up in this Groundhog Day hell, but is determined to find out what is going on just as soon as he can get past 12.47. The Mel, the Frank, a Groundhog Day plot laced with science fiction, I imagine this must be your movie of the year, Graham. Well, this was a complete surprise to me. A film with Mel Gibson in it that was actually good. I must say, I really did enjoy the film. I mean, especially the bits where Mel got shot, stabbed and decapitated. (laughs) Oh, hang on, I I don't think he did get decapitated. That was probably just me dreaming about that. This film is excellent. It's a Frank Grillo vehicle or his calling card to Hollywood. As such, it's a tough-as-nails action movie. However, it's also really funny. I laughed out loud every few minutes as the action gets ramped up and the looping nature of the film is used to constantly surprise the audience. The stunts are great, but at the heart of the movie, it also contains a love story of a father for his estranged wife and son. I thought it was just really, really good. The hero goes on a number of journeys in the film. He goes on a journey of discovery to try and find out who the people or who are trying to kill him and does discover why he's in a time loop. He goes on a journey of self-discovery that allows him to grow as a father and husband. And there's a goal-driven journey to find a safe way through the maze of assassins to his goal at 7.14. This is so well plotted and thought out. It really is hard to criticise. If it were not for the obvious casting error, this would be (laughs) my film of the month. But having the male in a pivotal role really is a problem. However, if you're fine with an alcoholic, wife-beating, anti-Semitic, homophobic racist, maybe you'll get the full enjoyment out of the movie. Isn't that right, Jeff? <laughs> you referring that to me, Graham? Um, sorry. Uh, I thought Mel Gibson, a pivotal supporting role, don't you think? He was... Awful. I thought he was yes. awful. And I, and I thought his speech about the boa constrictor and the pig was just like, 
okay, and this is what meant to mean what? He's a deep character, or he just gets weird enjoyment out of strange events in his life. I'm going with the latter. So, <laughs> in the big multinational company that you once used to work for, that we won't name, <laughs> are you telling me you've never come across any potential leader or wannabe leader in that company that didn't sit you down and tell you ridiculous stories every now and again? Are you telling me that didn't happen, Graham? Well, that happened all the time. And there is the point of what he was doing. All right, we'll gloss over that then. Darren? This film just got off to one of the best starts ever. The yeah. only segment was absolutely awesome. It got you through explanation of the, what the concept was. It was action-packed. Frank Grillo, I thought, came across... I mean, he always comes across well in films and charismatic. This was one where I actually thought he came across not just like a, a good hand, but also a great star. I, I thought he just came across really, yeah. really well in it. The action scenes were, were great. They were funny. They, they, they had my interest, you know, right from the star. And there's a one-time video game player i could really relate to the whole concept of basically going through the same scenario again and again and again again to the point that you just can't get past this is back in the day when being a computer game player meant that you didn't have save points or any of that rubbish if you died you started <laughs> right from the start and had to go through it all again and, and that's what that, this was a throwback to and, and i could re- really you know re- relate to it and so the opening of it i thought you know i'm in for a really great ride here Unfortunately, the, the film seemed to crash to a halt at any time that Naomi Watts came on. I, th- I thought the scenes with her as the um, as the ex-wife of Frank Grillo, when, when they were together, it just slowed down so intense. And I actually found my, my attention wandering. And it was the same when the scenes that she had with uh, Mel Gibson. Anytime Mel Gibson was in there, I, I just thought it was bland and and this sort of the, the ending where she's on as well and i'm not blaming her completely i just think that most of the human interaction scenes between the three of them just were just dull but fortunately most of this film is action movies and when it got back to that i thought it was great every single time you know there was always something different i have to say as well i loved the the hunters that he was facing up against. Oh, they were I, great. I just wish that I could have learned a little bit more about some of them. I absolutely loved uh, Selena, um, uh, Selena Ayo, I think her name is, as Guan Yin. She, to me, when it says boss level, because I'm, I'm guessing that the big boss was meant to be Mel Gibson. To me, she was the big boss. She was she was the, the one that had to be got past because she was such a great fighter in it, and you know, and she was so awesome. I absolutely loved her character. I would love to see her in more action movies, but she got the look and the charisma. I, I, I thought she was great. There were some really touching moments because when it got to a stage where uh, the Frank Grillo character decided he was just going to pack in trying to solve the problem he was in, and was just going to spend each day getting to know his um, son. I thought that was a really touching yeah. moment. And the scenes and that, I, th- I thought that brought a real heart. It was a really unexpectedness to, to it. I just thought that the, the Mel Gibson bit, I, I could have, you know, and, and Naomi Watts, I just thought they were there just to have a bit of star power. And those were the bits that I found really um, dull. But generally, I really enjoyed it. And I've got to say as well, for this type of movie, it gets bonus points from me for not feeling the need to mention Groundhog Day. That gets a little pat on the uh, back from me. All right. Well, I'm going to spoil that for you now then. Um, so when director Joe Carnahan makes a personal project, he's one of the most interesting and intense directors currently working to, in Hollywood today. 
The Grey, for example, is one of the bleakest, the most powerful American movies of this century. And while not as good as that, Boss Level can be categorised as another in those strong personal projects. On the face of it, sorry, Darren, it's a bit Groundhog Day. It's also a bit Edge of Tomorrow, or whatever we call in that film this week. Uh, <laughs> however, by making the film play like a video game, Carnahan and producer star Frank Grillo, who's developed this project with a director over the last decade, have made an almost Buddhist movie. Although this seemed to be unlimited levels here when compared to the four or five of that religion. Trust me, I'm an expert on that. To explain that connection in more detail, I'll give an example. The game changes when Roy engages emotionally with his son, who he's tended to ignore for most of his own life in the real world. What was a surprise to me in this construction was the use of voiceover as well to further expand that point. Now, I normally dislike films where there's a constant voiceover narration, yet here that actually works as it's the lead character talking about his life and his feelings and how he internally attains the next level. Unfortunately, with such a strong focus on one character, uh, it becomes difficult for any other performer to really register. And I take Darren's point about Naomi Watts. And I do have to say, and I, I say this heartfelt and really sadly, that Mel Gibson also is a sort of bit to the side here. Not far enough. And I think that's <laughs> the same for most of the main characters. So... Because of that, outside of Frank's performance, the most memorable performances are the cameos. Michelle Yeoh doing a Matrix training sequence and Ken Yong. After the acting, let's come to that ending. Now, this is a spoiler warning. The ending in the version I saw is almost like that of the TV series Quantum Leap. And perfect in that you don't know what happens after. It's like, again, going back to the Buddhist thing, like life transitioning into death. No wonder Hulu recut it to dumb it down for their action-only American audience. A real shame as this, even with its flaws, budgets for effects being one, is one of the best genre films in a long time. Nice selection, Graham. Shame that the Mel wasn't in it more. Oh, God. <laughs> so, Frank Grillo in an Edge of Tomorrow's style film where he plays Bruce Willis but with a ton of exposition and loads more guns, yeah. Another time loop movie. Frank Grillo does his best. The Mel was, well, he was in it. His overacting pained me. What overacting? Uh, Michelle Yeoh <laughs> has a cameo, and that was great fun. Naomi Watts was criminally underused. I disagree with my colleagues here. Why was she even in it? She's way too good for this type of film. Set up in 2012, filmed in 2018, and then left on the shelf. There were scenes that I'm sure Joe Panahan and the crew would have done better if they could had had the time but uh best put it out and then recruit losses it also has to contend with another time loop film there were several time loop films uh the comedy palm springs and uh it pales into insignificance against that one after writing down edge of tomorrow i should have added john wick groundhog day and the matrix as a mishmash of so many other films but it's hard to say despite all my misgivings this is a fun if flawed movie the movie for when you don't want to think too hard. I damn it, I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> I, I disagree with your thinking too hard. As I said about the different Buddhist levels that oh, are all in yeah. there, yeah. And I disagree with you on that. Yeah, but it's okay. You can disagree. It wasn't transcendent, you. was it? <laughs> this for me jumps immediately into third place in the Joe Carnahan film catalogue. 
behind NARC and the grey, which um, Jeff mentioned earlier. It was also the more enjoyable of the two computer game-related films that came out on the weekend that it released. Carnahan's films are always testosterone-fueled, and Frank Grillo and Mal Gibson absolutely meet that mark. They are like testosterone-personified. But, and the other guys have mentioned this, it's hilariously funny, and it's great fun to watch. And in fact, just like a lot of action games, it only slows down and starts to sag when it tries to explain the plot, which thankfully is left reasonably open-ended, certainly in the version that is available in the UK. And I think the guys refer to that, you know, this whole thing of when Naomi Watson and Mel Gibson come in, those bits are to explain the plot. Those bits are where it slows down and you know, where it excels is the time loop and when Frank Grillo's on screen. The action is really brilliant. The humour is sardonic. It nails both to a T. And also, the other thing I'm going to say, not that I'm jealous, is how on earth do you get a physique like Frank Grillo? I thought that that only existed in computer games. Um, It's super enjoyable. I wouldn't even talk about... I mean, some of the comments that have been said is like kind of like for this type of movie, forget all that. It's a really good film. It doesn't matter if it's a genre movie and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So so a question here then is, you know, everybody said that Naomi Watts and Mel Gibson tend to slow the film down. But yet there are scenes with Frank Grillo and his son and how when he gets to know him. Now that, again, is is character piece and talking but that didn't slow the film down. That brought the plot forward for me. Did that work for you in the same way? Yeah, I mean, that all of that stuff really works. Like the arcade that they go to and they have a conversation, they visit. That's just really, really good. That relationship really works. The stuff with Naomi Watts, slightly less so. And um, Mel Gibson is doing what he's being asked, I think. He's, he's being asked to be... Oh, don't uh, defend him. Well, <laughs> so what... One of the bits, one of the things I wrote in my review on my site is that Mel Gibson has a really pointy beard. That means he's the villain and he's got to be evil. Yes. And that's what he's doing. It does mean that. Yeah. Wow. Shocking, shocking. Anyway, boss level. A great selection from our Graham. And while he won't say it himself, he is missing more of the Mel. So, boss level is currently showing on Amazon Prime in the UK and Hulu in the States. And as we said, they're two different versions. Another action star who's seen better days, comparing him to the Mel, of course, is Jean-Claude Van Damme. And this month he returns in The Last Mercenary. Une légende. Le mercenaire le plus réputé au monde. Expert en pilotage, en armement. Insaisissable. Où son surnom? La Brume. This is a French language feature, although Jeff was able to find the Netflix control to play the dubbed version. Took him a few hours, but he got there eventually. Did. And a couple (laughs) of phone calls to support. (laughs) As for the film's plot, the muscles from Brussels is Richard Brumaire. Richard is a former French secret agent who is now a mercenary for hire. Many years ago, he made a deal with the French authorities to disappear and not reveal what he knows as long as his son was protected for life. 
However, in the present day, an overzealous civil servant removes the anonymity from now grown-up Archibald Samir Dekazar. Suddenly, Archie is a hunted man with a price on his head. On hearing the news, Bermer returns to France to protect his son and find out who's trying to kill him. Neil, did this French comedy action movie entertain you? And did you watch it in French or English? I watched it in the French, and yes, it certainly did entertain me. I found myself laughing out loud. Jean-Claude Van Damme is hilarious as the fading super spy slash action star and taking the mickey out of his own films. Who does that? It's a film is in the style of Red, but with Van Damme doing all the characters, I was never a fan of his, but after this, I have some newfound respect, some great lines too, received by everybody else in absolute disbelief. He who wants to approach a lion should look like a gazelle. If a beard endowed ris- wisdom, then all the goats would be prophets. I'm convinced he's taken the mickey out of uh, Eric Cantona's when the trawler fish sardines and stuff he did in the 90s. Bad guy is high on cocaine and self-entitlement and thinks Scarface is a documentary. His son's friend, played by Asasilla, is great as the only one who really gets Van Damme. Alban Ivanov plays out-of-his-depth bureaucrat and the set piece with him on a skateboard is in his tighty whities is very funny. That said, the rest of the cast sometimes have trouble keeping up with Van Damme. Then again, my eye stayed on Jean-Claude most of the time. He could still do the splits, unless it was a double. The action scenes are cleverly photographed and play at the pace of a 60-year-old fading muscles from Brussels and taken seriously but end up being slapstick that Van Damme makes the most of. I hope the cast of Expendables, whatever, they're on four, five, seven, ten, take note. This is how faded action stars should bow out, laughing at themselves and having great fun doing it. You do know he was in an Expendables film, don't you? Yes, Yes, I know, but yeah, as forgettable as all the other Expendables films. I think the thing is, though, is, is you're talking about him as a fading action star, but he's younger than Liam Neeson, isn't he? He's younger than me. Yes, <laughs> yes, he is. But he, he oh. kind of plays it as an older person. I was, I was surprised he was only 60, but he does look a lot older. I mean, he's yeah, younger, and... younger than me. Phil? Yeah, I also watched it in French. That's, that's what he's supposed <laughs> to do, Jeff. Anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> the film as a whole felt like a nod to the Pink Panther films to me. Mm. Van Damme is the master of disguise and of martial arts. Some of these um, uh, costumes that he were in were quite funny, I thought. Yeah. Um, the politicians in the film are either the villains or they hold grudges against The Mist, which is his nickname. I thought that was brilliant as well. Yeah. Um, or they're just completely clueless. Minister Lazar, who's played by Alban Ivanov, has the level of incompetence that is on par with Cluzo, or perhaps Cluzo is actually the son played by Samir de Kazar, who feels like the bumbling lead role. But throughout the film, it's it's generally a mix of gentle farce, comedy, father-son bonding and action. I'm interested in your thoughts on this as well, guys. There's a slightly odd reference to being obsessed with films as well. So the opening credits has kind of got like a 90s action movie vibe. One of our villains, played by Nassim Lies, is obsessed with De Palma's Scarface, or more specifically, Pacino's Tony Montana. He's got personalised number plates, he dresses like him, and he obsessively watches the movie. I got the feeling that the writer-director, David Charhom 
almost seems to be suggesting he had a similar obsession with Van Damme in the 80s and 90s with some of the references he was putting on the screen, certainly in the end credits as well. I don't know if you guys thought the same. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. That's an interesting Um, one, that um, Yeah, Van Damme, um, in one of the flashbacks, he was uh, dressed like Rambo. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Good Um, and and the the blood sport reference at the end I thought was great as well. Was it blood sport or kickboxing? Blood sport. Yeah. Um, is it worth a watch? I thought so. I enjoyed myself enough. I laughed and smiled at all the peculiar references and odd jokes. It does fall a bit between two stools though. It's never fully an action movie. It's never fully a farce or a comedy. It kind of flits between them all. But yeah, I I enjoyed it. I did like um, you said about the obsession with Scarface when they turn up in the room in the end and it's done out completely like the bar in Scarface. <laughs> the production design on that was uh, very yeah. impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this film was crap in any language. The, the sad thing about this is this is the sort of film that I should love because I think more than anybody here, I love cheap action movies. I think there's a lot of creativity, you know, and, you know, the ones that you get on streaming and, and stuff or straight to video as it used to be back in the day, I think you get a lot more creativity, a lot more sort of passion and, and heart in them. And this one, I just found it really, really tiresome. I mean, Matt Van Damme's been doing this um, this meta parody of himself for so long. He did it in a film called JCVD. He had a TV show a couple of years ago, uh, which I think was something called uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme Johnson. In that one, basically, played himself, a retired old action star. And he'd just done a, a lot better than this. And and now, because he's he's going to the well once again, it's just just old hat. And I think the sad thing is, this didn't even entertain me as, a, as an action movie. I mean, the, the sad sight of Van Damme, having stunt doubles you know and 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 they were very obvious with stunt doubles it was re- really badly done if he can't do those sort of moves that, that he used to do back in the day then right around that make his action scenes a bit more grittier and down to earth but it, you know but if you're going to stunt doubles you know at least try and make it sort of not so obvious in this film was a whole slew of characters who became this like little posse that just had nothing to add except that basically we were just there to, to make up a, a team. The villains were inspiring. I thought the relationship with his son didn't move me at, at all compared to what you know what we got in boss level. The plot went over my head because I got so bored with it and I was drifting off. When it came to like, the big conclusions, I had no idea what they were, were trying to do. What what the actual end game means? Why the actual one in the end? What mistakes? Well, I just totally drifted off, and it just it, I just felt you know really awful watching it. The only thing that I actually f- enjoyed was the red headed villains in the gold swimsuit was really hot. That was pretty much it. The one the one funny guy I have to say in the film was the guy who was like in the control center watching everything unfold because he seemed to have this sort of it was calling out basically how stupid everybody was. And that, that was kind of the only <laughs> bit in there that I actually found genuinely funny. I will say, if you want a really wild action film with some heart in it on Netflix, check out a film called Extreme. And if you want to see an aging action hero retaining his relevance in the genre, check out Jackie Chan in The Foreigner. Both of those are a lot better film than this one and a lot more worth your time. But, but this one... Yeah, I like yeah. The Foreigner. Okay. So um, did you watch it in French or English? Uh, I watched it in French. Oh, right, okay. 
Right, so I'm clearly the different one on this. I don't think it mattered either way. The last verse reads, reveals the reason why there'll never be a French James Bond. You mentioned Pink Panther, but they couldn't come up to Bond because, quite simply, they can't do comedy or subtle (laughs) humour. But then, what do you expect from a nation that has snails as a national dish? Oh, is not a national dish? Never mind. The supposedly humorous script is leaden and the character work caricature at best. Yet, despite all of that, Director David Charon has a great visual eye, and he's batting well above the material he has created to work with. The action sequences are exciting, and there are moments that would not look out of place in a Zack Snyder film. Highest praise indeed. However, ultimately, we come back to that poor scripting. It is shocking. Whether you watch it in French or English, it's still bad. Van Damme's okay. I must be the only person that didn't spot he wasn't doing his own stunt work. I, I didn't see it either. No. I was I was too too happy enjoying it. He has seen better days. He's knocking on a bit. You know, he's almost up there with Graham. And comedy's not sort a forte of. of his. <laughs> yeah. But then again, Van Damme's from Belgium and they have even less humour than the French. But then most of the performances are poor. Only as a sailor, as as Dahlia. Dahlia? Dahlia? Dahlia. Makes an impression. However, what did keep me entertained in a sort of sideways fashion are the constant references to 80s action films. And uh, I think that was a good spot of yours uh, there, Phil, about the director and his love of those. Especially, you know, the, the 83 version of Scarface. If you like that, you'll certainly like this. There's a fun joke on Bloodsport. And my favourite moment, and the one time in this film I laughed out loud, probably because it was told in English, was when one character survived almost certain death and we discovered he's wearing a bulletproof tuxedo. (laughs) And he comes out with the line, it's from France. If it had been from Bangladesh, I'd have been a goner. (laughs) (laughs) How many many countries have you insulted in this this review? You can't go for the lot, surely. I haven't finished yet. Uh, One (laughs) final thought. Although this film is a 15, I think the violence is 12 level yeah, at best. Definitely. I think they were aiming for the my spy type of audience. And like so much in this movie, didn't really know which way to turn and how to sort their material out. But then you can never expect the French to plan. Look at how they and Roger Johnson did in Afghanistan. Oh, so gosh. disappointing, both the film and the way, of course, they left that poor country. Right. Well, there's our listeners gone by half now. Yeah, that's most of them. Yes. Well, that's our thoughts on Last Mercenary, and we disclaim any of uh, thoughts that Jeff had, which can be found on Netflix. Let's now turn to a somewhat bigger action adventure, Jungle Cruise. Legend has it there is a tree in the Amazon that possesses unparalleled healing powers, and the arrowhead is the key to unlocking it. Of all the Jungle Cruises you can take in the Amazon, this one is undoubtedly the cheapest but also the most thrilling. Heads up, coming through. We're headed up river to Lagrimas de Cristal. We must secure our travel, come on. Hello? Not a good time. My brother and I are looking for passage up river. Please go away. I have a lot of money. If you believe in legends, you should believe in curses too. You're gonna beg me to turn back. Well, I look forward to disappointing you. 10,000 to bring you there alive. Dead is 15,000. Why should I pay more dead? Dead, I'd have to carry you. Dead's a lot harder, lady. Here we go. 
The latest film from Disney is another feature based on one of their theme park rides. Set in 1916, Dr. Lily Houghton, Emily Blunt and her brother McGregor, Jack Whitehall, travel to Brazil to undertake a dangerous journey. They plan to travel into the heart of the jungle in search of the Tears of the Moon, a mythical tree whose flowers can perform all sorts of wonders. For this journey up the Amazon River, they hire Frank Wolf, Dwayne Johnson, a skipper as run down as his boat. He also has a knack for survival, a trait they will all need as they confront jungle dangers, the supernatural and bizarrely a German submarine. Jeff, how does the Disney World ride compare to the film? I didn't realise you knew I'd been on the ride, Neil. Um, yeah, you yeah, told uh, me years and years ago, uh, actually. Oh, right, I have yeah, a good memory. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah, years ago, I was on the Disney World ride <laughs> in Florida, and I went on the Jungle Cruise ride with my family. It was fun and exciting at the time. However, after we left the ride, we quickly forgot it. Far better and more spectacular theme park rides over there in Florida. Unfortunately, the film of Jungle Cruise doesn't even match up to that forgettable ride. It's bland and forgettable. It's a great cast, Johnson, Blunt and Whitehall, all of whom are engaging, often rising well above the thin material. And clearly a great deal of money has been spent on this. So why, when it all looks so spectacular, doesn't it engage? The reason, of course, as with so many of this type of film, is the script. Many critics have pointed out the similarities to the original Mummy film. That's the 1999 Mummy film. But there you had a real sense of danger throughout, and they added in some quite horrific moments to get the heart pounding. As this is a family Disney film, it's not prepared to go for that, so the jeopardy level is at extremely low, like Neil's concentration when I'm talking. But there is also... Sorry, what were you saying? Exactly. (laughs) But there's also another problem with the script. It's copied the first Pirates of the Caribbean. It crossed that title off and wrote Jungle Cruise in its place. We've seen it all before. Ancient curses, the dead not dying, etc. But that earlier film, the Pirates film, worked because then the idea was original and one member of the cast decided to take his performance in a completely different direction than the norm. Now, in Jungle Cruise, it's the villain, played by the usually excellent Jesse Plemons, who is acting somewhere in the stratosphere. And amazingly, if you check this out, he is based on a real person. However, because no one else acts like that, he just doesn't connect. Even the excellent James Newton Howard can't save it with his Williams-like music score, although I have listened to it a couple of times, isolated from the film, and it is better. So the film has taken the music down. And for a film which costs this much money, why are the CGI animals so bad? Much more work was needed for this film to connect with an audience. It just shows top stars, huge amounts of money, don't mean anything without a good script. I think one of the few moments of interest for me was that supposedly controversial Jack Whitehall gay moment. A bit of Oscar Wilde in there for you, Neil. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, Jesus yeah, you, you like your Oscar Wilde's. Um, now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> what are you going to say next? Well, no, no, you like the writing of Oscar Wilde. You, you were just... a cultured person. Oh, thank you. That's what you were going for. Yes, I, yeah, I did wonder. Well, well no. I, what possibly else could I mean? Um, <laughs> I thought you could probably insult another country. <laughs> yes, go for it. No, I don't think. Anyway, yeah. having gone through this review, I've been having a flashback in my mind to that ride all those years ago in Florida, 25 years ago, and I now remember more of that ride than I do of this bloody film. Over to you, Darren. 
Well, Brian, this was a film of two halves for me. Um, the first half of this film I really enjoyed. I, I thought it was great to get back to a, a kind of a quest-style adventure story. The thing that I really loved about it was The Rock and Emily Blunt. They, they had a great chemistry to, towards each other. They had a great banter. Both of them have such charisma, and they're so likeable. And here, this film was really playing to their strengths. And I was really enjoying the film. You know, it was action-packed. Jack Whitehall, I think, fitted in really well. He had, you know, he had some good moments. But the whole thing was was funny. It was action-packed. Some of the editing was a bit odd. I've got to say, there were certain scenes where sometimes a character would get from one spot to another, and I had no idea how it got there. It was very odd, but I was really enjoying it. It, it was fun. And then it went sideways for me. And the bit where it went sideways was when they introduced the three conquistadors and the film went in more into the realms of, of magic. Like you say, it's like the Pirates of the Caribbean film. And I didn't like the three villains, but the, these weird powers that they had to sort of change into these snake creatures and, and, and be, be sort of the vine creatures. I thought it was real distracting. I couldn't get a, a, a handle on it. The whole action scenes with those I found really, really difficult to follow. Again, the editing in this bit was it was a real issue. I would have preferred if it kept the story just to be how it was in the first half, where it just seemed to be a sort of battle in the, um, the German army. That I would have enjoyed a, a hell of a lot more. Even in the bits where in the second half when I wasn't enjoying it enough, there was enough in there with, with Blunt and, and, uh, and The Rock to, to keep me satisfied. There were some sort of scenes that I, I felt could have been more dramatic. I mean, there's a scene where she, um, the Emma Blunt character gets um, trapped in a cage underwater and then a load of piranhas come along. And I thought that scene should have been a lot more dramatic. The piranhas just seemed to, like, float onto the scene. There should have been sort of, like, you know, there should be more of a build to that, more drama. But, but like, and, and like, when it gets to the end of the, the film, in the, the magic, it's the whole sort of place the arrowhead into the thing, that sort of scenario. I've never been a fan of that sort of storyline. But again, the thing that carried it throughout it all for me was, you know, was The Rock and Emily Blunt. And, and they sort of, they, they made the film enjoyable. I, I personally would, would like to see another film with with them in because I think the, the chemistry was, was so great in it. But again, I would prefer it not to have that magic element. I, I prefer a more sort of, um, you know, grounded Indiana Jones type approach or where if you're going to do the magic, you save it right for the very end. But generally speaking, you know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed most of the film for, for what it was. Graham. Oh, um, and here's another. I feel like Mr. Grumpy here. This is just such an, a disappointment. I mean, how is it possible to produce a boring movie with this much star power on board? Uh, you know, the answer seems to be give them a terrible script and a plot that's been done to death with films like, as everybody said, Pirates of the Caribbean, but also things like Romancing the Stone, where you have two great lead characters. Dwayne Johnson is great when he has something to do. But I felt in this movie, he spent too much time driving his boat and he forgot to be an action hero. I mean, the most action he was doing was turning left and, ooh, then I'll turn right. Emily Blunt was wonderful. I mean, seriously, when is she not? But again, she had nothing really to get her teeth into. Poor Jack Whitehall. I mean, he was left delivering some of the most awful lines. It was, cr I was cringing with embarrassment every time he was on screen. I mean, Whitehall has great comic timing, but he seemed to be delivering his lines on a click track without 
you know, rather than ad-libbing and riffing off the other two, did the director beat the spontaneity out of him? I don't know. I mean, the rest of the principal cast, Paul Giamatti and Jesse um, Pelmons, they were just great, but they were wasted. And to come back to this thing about the CGI, it was shockingly bad. The pet panther or whatever that thing was, was terrible. I mean, he was so visually jarring. I was starting to get annoyed. I'm not even going to mention how shite the snakes were. I'd advise the team who did that particular CGI to go and watch Monsters, Inc. and look at Mike Wazowski's girlfriend Celia's hair. I mean, that's all I'm saying. Go and look at it, idiots. I mean, I spent a lot of the film wondering if they did the snake CGI on a PlayStation 2. I mean, what? I was totally disappointed, and I was hoping for so much more. And I paid 20 bloody quid for this so I could sit down and watch it on a Friday night with my wife. And it was, Actually, oh. you paid 25 because you paid also for a seat in an IMAX you never turned up for. Yeah, exactly, but yeah. I know. I was, we were both left bored, and, and none of it was the, the star's fault. It was just shockingly bad script. Well, this is um, getting some stunning insights, and everybody's picking up on his faults. I'm sure Phil's going to continue this. <laughs> you lot are a bloody bunch of Grinches, honestly. I, I thought, coming on fourth for this review, I wouldn't have to talk much about like certain positives in the film, but I think I'm going to have to wing it and pad out my review a bit. My family loved this film. We watched it together. I think anyone who listens to this regularly, I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. They loved it. We all enjoyed ourselves. And as for Peril, yes, my 7-year-old couldn't get to sleep that night because of the snakes, but apparently the PlayStation 2 CGI. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) there are three (laughs) obvious reference points. I'm going to repeat them again. I think everyone said them. Pirates of the Caribbean, it's a family adventure movie based on a Disney ride. The Mummy which people haven't sort of referenced, but the trio is almost identical. So the brother's the comic relief, the sister is the capable heroine, and they team up with a local guy to solve a supernatural mystery. It's almost kind of identical. Scooby-Doo. But it's not as scary as The Mummy. And you know, and Darren said, oh, I don't know if it's because it's aiming at the younger kids. I think that's exactly hit the nail on the head. If my seven-year-old can't get to sleep because of the snakes in this film, I don't ever dare want to show her the mummy for another year or two. <laughs> no, um, definitely not. No, no, no. <laughs> and, and the other sort of touch point, which I think has been mentioned already, is Indiana Jones. So we've got, like, the German villains and the daring do adventurer and the hero with one weakness. Nobody's mentioned that. Our hero has a weakness just like Indiana Jones, and it's quite an important weakness given that she's on a boat. The only thing that I kind of thought failed was Blunt and Johnson are amazing together, have lots of chemistry. They're both, everyone's mentioned this, they're both great, capable actors. But I didn't think that the romantic subplot was believable. And that was the only sort of failing that I had. Nobody's mentioned the amazing orchestral Metallica songs in the flashback sequences. Come on, people. That was bizarrely <laughs> kooky for a Disney film. <laughs> who who had their money on 2021, the Disney film with Metallica songs orchestrally over a flashback? I don't think anyone had that. No. Um, and Metallica sellouts. I was going to say the best character in the film, but definitely not according to Graham, but definitely according to my kids, is the Jaguar called Proxima the Murder Cat. 
my kids loved him. They thought he was amazing. I get where you're coming from. You're all old men who watched it on your own. If you watched it with a bunch of kids, with my wife. If you honestly, I, I think it hits exactly the right notes for the family adventure movie that it is. And maybe I loved it because my kids loved it, and I got to sit and watch them laughing and pointing and screaming at the you know the various stuff in there. Maybe that's why I enjoyed it more. But I, I think it does what it's supposed to do. I bet if Clint Eastwood had been in it, you wouldn't have liked it. <laughs> if Clint Eastwood was in it, they um, all would have like been a bit maudling and just sat on the boat and had a chat. <laughs> <laughs> well, Neil, let's see where he's going to go. He usually well, uh, follows the last person, so I suspect he'll give it a good review. Just oh, the sure. one from Phil. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I mean, they, I didn't know anything about it before I went in. I just the cast members. Uh, it's been said by all of you except Phil. Uh, this, this is just the mummy in, in set in the Amazon. And as good as Emily Blunt and Jane Dwayne Johnson are, and I agree with Phil, the chemistry was good, but that sort of romance was utterly useless. I just did not believe that. Uh, seven people were involved in the writing of the script. For what? It was the mummy reduced to. 12a all the danger removed and everything it was just a bit bland and yes i, I know seven ten year olds uh, will love this of course and it's not for old grumpy people of course but yeah for me i'm afraid i was just bored Take your seat in the grouchy corner with the rest of us, other than Phil. Then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, even, I thought I was quite even, positive. Uh, lowered the tone down. Can I just oh, bring up something you mentioned there about this? Um, that there was no um, tension or anything because it's a Disney movie. Um, well, yeah. I mean, if if you if you put out a twelve A Disney movie, it's not going to have anything in it. And I guess, yeah, as, as uh, Phil said, the snakes were scary for a seven year old. Would you not say other films like The Lion King? Well, yeah, The Lion King. But is, I'm just, uh, I just think this is thing that because it's Disney, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Like weak and, and lovely and everything. I mean, Jesus Christ, Bambi. I mean, <laughs> well, Bambi's, yes, Bambi's exactly. I mean, a headshot it's, off it's, and like dragged it, back on some some hunter's car. It's you know, Disney are yes, not this lovely, cute thing. They've, they have got this sort of you they know, were, got they, are, head, they weren't. You know, no, I mean. Dumbo gets given alcohol when he's a bit sad. I mean, they've got all that yeah, sort of then, thing, then but they've then, taken it all out, haven't they? And we can't talk about the crows anymore? Yes. <laughs> we can't. No, you can't. Exactly. So don't right. then, Jess, stop yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I agree with you, Darren. It, maybe, it's, maybe it's me just being hypercritical, yes, but it, it just felt wrong. It's a kid's movie. So other than Phil... A bit underwhelming, really. Jungle Cruise can be seen in cinemas or for a premium on Disney Plus, or if you're Graham, both. And before we move on, a little bit of breaking news to you, because I know you always look forward to this. Oh, God, um, no. Secrets are breaking now about the new Candyman film. In a recent interview, the director was asked, where does the Candyman keep his candy? And he said, the Candyman can. Oh, gee, uh, God, oh, my God. That's and the worst of ever. Why? Why did you bother? Sort of film-related. 
Prince Andrew recently asked in an interview oh, what films he likes to watch. Oh, he shit. said he doesn't mind as long as they're 12 or 15. Oh! Uh, no, that's right. an old one. Uh, Back to the reviews. And let's see if our last feature review will add to the excitement. It's The Suicide Squad. Robert Dubois. He's in prison for putting Superman in the ICU with a kryptonite bullet. I'm not joining your suicide squad. I wouldn't take such extreme measures if this mission weren't more important than you could possibly imagine. Are you in or out? Good. Let's meet your team. It's okay, I'm not okay. Each member is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. Number two. Good to know. Your mission is to destroy every trace of something known only as Project Starfish. Any questions? Starfish is a slang term for a butthole. Think there's any connection? Ratatouille, what do you got? Bird. <laughs> now, now, it. Stay off the comp. Government agent Amanda Waller, played by Viola Davies has put together a new Suicide Squad, led once again by Colonel Rick Flagg, Joel Kinnaman. Their mission, to infiltrate a South American island nation to destroy the mysterious Project Starfish. Things do not start well. Almost the entire team is killed when landing on the island. Luckily, there was a Suicide Squad too. Now it is down to Peacemaker, King Shark, Polka Dot Man, Ratcatcher 2... Bloodsport, and of course, Harley Quinn, Margot Robbie, back again to do the right thing and complete the mission. Darren, DC have recruited James Gunn to bring this adventure to our screens. Was it worth it? Oh, hell yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, James Gunn is the perfect person to do a proper spirited Suicide Squad film. I I just want to take this time out just to say thank you to all the outrage hobbyists and the cancellers and all the look at me virtual signalers for digging up those jokes that James Gunn made you know, bloody years ago and getting Marvel to kick him off Guardians. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, Dan, nobody should get banned for telling off colour jokes. <laughs> I wonder why. Okay. So, yeah, so getting back to what I was talking about, getting Marvel to kick him off Guardians 3, because without you lot, without your whining and your patting your own little uh, backs, DC would not have been able to get James Gunnier to do the Suicide Squad. And the great twist about all this is not only that, but James Gunn's going to go back to Marvel and do um, Guardians 3 anyway. So thanks to all you lot and your whining, you've given us a great Suicide Squad movie, which we wouldn't have had probably anyway. I mean, the minority actually loved the first Suicide Squad movie, mainly because of, of the characters and because I, I did actually love all the weird musical little uh, flashbacks and everything. However, I re- did recognise all the faults in the film. And while I actually miss the darker themes of the original, I've got to say I love the direction that they took into this film because this is actually one of the few Marvel or DC films that I f- looks like a comic book film. Other Marvel films have comic book characters adapted for the screen. But this one, watching it, it actually looks like a comic book. The story is like a comic book. But the, the villain at the end, you know, a giant pink starfish, you know, it, it, it's like animated 
with live action characters, pages from the comic. And for this, I absolutely thought it was absolutely mesmerizing. As a Harley Quinn fan, I can never get enough of Margaret Robbie, and she was awesome here as, as anything. But I also really took to the uh, the new characters as well. You know, I I thought Idris Elba was great as Bloodshot. John Cena as this sort of weird right wing um, vigilante um, patriot as 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 peacemaker. I, I thought was great. It was suitable that EBE turned out to be the, the the big turncoat, and I never thought that I would actually be caring about a character called Polka Dot Man. And he, and he was one of the highlights in the movie. He actually even had a really sort of movie personality and backstory about him. I loved Ratcatcher too. And Rick Flagg, who went from having a stick up his ass in the first film to being a really cool, relaxed guy in this one. And I just absolutely loved it. I, I loved the, you know, the, the story was sort of just action-packed, just did what a film like this needed to do. It was basically the dirty dozen with superheroes. You know, the massacre scene at the start, which I... Um, I was actually quite expecting because I did notice in the trailers that all these characters were in like the sort of a lineup and then were never anywhere else in the, in the trailer. It showed that this film needed to be an R rating, but it's just what I think the first film should have been, to be honest. It was violent, it was gory, but the deaths were uh, great. Do hope that at some point they really explore Waller being a villain more. I think her her being the the big bad of the uh, of one of the films, if if they do any more, would would really go down well. I think Gun done good. I, I felt I absolutely love this film. You didn't mention the shark. No, and again, that that that's, that's that was another beauty. The um, you know, the, I mean, it reminded me a bit of Groot of the Groot from Guardians of the Galaxy, but even more sadistic. You see, that's the thing. So many great characters in this film, but I actually um, neglected to mention a, a half man, half shark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something you don't see every day. Uh, in well, shorts. Yeah. After Jungle Cruise, I'm too. I'm almost frightened to ask this. What did you think of it, Phil? <laughs> I think hopefully we're we'll all be on the same page on this one. So the entire movie is a bonkers, joyous, and hilarious triumph. And it will probably make many people forget Suicide Squad exists because the Suicide Squad is the definitive article. I know Jeff's going to challenge that later, though, because he's got to be different. Gunn appears to have been given free reign to take the brilliant ragtag team humour from Guardians of the Galaxy films and just add lots of violence, lots of swearing, lots of death of the titular Suicide Squad. And if I'm honest, I'm surprised that I've seen number of people sort of saying or writing on Twitter and what have you that they didn't like it. I, I just don't get it. I thought it was amazing. The action is great. The humour is brilliant and barely laugh out loud funny. I watched this on opening night in a packed cinema and it was raucous. Everyone was laughing a lot. It was just great and a great atmosphere to be in. The characters and acting is superb. Darren's beat me to the punch. Who knew that Rick Flagg, played by Joel Kinnaman, could be a character I cared about after that first film? <laughs> He's great in it. And, yeah. you know, it just goes to show, you know, what can be done with a you know different view and a different angle. He's taken um, from my- the lead, isn't he? He's not the lead. He doesn't have to carry the film. Yeah, but on, on that note, because um, I was going to try and talk about each of the characters, and Darren's right, there's so many great characters and, and bits and acting in this you know, the lead the the team lead which is Bloodsport with Idris Elba as, as the main character 
his character is really, really similar to Will Smith's in terms of, you know, he's a hitman and he's kind of got a daughter. That's all kind of the same sort of plot. But even though it's really similar, he's much more heartfelt and believable. Mm. And it's certainly the best film I've seen Idris Elba in. I mean, obviously he's great in The Wire, but I've never seen him probably in a film as good as this. Margot Robbie is amazing. She gets probably the best scene in the film. She's just insane. And I couldn't probably imagine anybody other than Margot Robbie playing her. No, absolutely um, And Darren mentioned some of them. So John Cena is bonkers. His logic is just mind-blowingly funny, but insane. Daniela Melchior, who plays Ratcatcher 2, she gets to be like the heart of the film. And there's a cameo from Taika Waititi in her sort of part of the film that is really touching as well. Um, I thought Polka Dot Man was genius. His whole mother sort of thing, you know, and and I really cared about him. And Sylvester Stallone, he's just brilliant. King Shark is just one of the funniest things in a film I've seen in a long, long time. As with the Guardians films, there's a jukebox soundtrack, which is fantastic. I don't know if Gunn picks those songs or if he's got a team of people, but they seem to nail every kind of scene where they have a song and it kind of fits Mm. perfectly. And it's just so much fun. And anyone who says otherwise, Jeff, is as crazy as some of the members <laughs> in this suicide squad. So, all right. So we've had two really glowing reviews of the Suicide Squad now. And a lot of the critics, mainstream critics, have been very kind to this film. So why isn't it taking money? To be honest, I actually was almost slightly wary of saying that I sat and watched it in a packed cinema because... Yeah. There'd be people who'd be like saying that that's completely unsafe and blah, 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 but double vaccinated and that's the what I'm allowed to do, so I'm going to do it because I like going to the cinema. Well, you, you say that, but Jungle Cruise and Black Widow, for example, the same as this, they're both, you can also see them on streaming if you'd rather, obviously not in the UK for this, but they've done financially extremely well at the box office, but this one hasn't. I can't understand that. I, I cannot understand that. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm surprised because it's easily the best thing that we've talked about tonight. It's, it's a great film. I don't know. Is it 15 versus 12A? That might not help. Uh, certainly something I think we'll come back to and talk about again. Uh, Neil. Well, yeah, I'm going to echo same things as last, last Suicide Squad as the original wanted to be. And it's been said before, it's a blast from start to finish. James Gunn keeps it simple, gives Margot Robbie and Idris Elba the heavy, heavy lifting and lets everything flow from there. Best of the rest, as Phil has just said, Daniela Milkioras as Ratcatcher 2, David Delsmalgian as Polka Dot Man and Sly Stone as King Shark Bird. <laughs> it's funny, violent, and there's a cohesive story. How difficult can it be? I'm looking at you first version. Margot Robbie doesn't have to wear the skimpiest clothing possible. Half the film, she's in a ball gown. The music is excellent. The Folsom Prison Blues is a standout. I absolutely adore that one. There are elements of the first one that could have been in Pinky Taking, and Amanda Waller gets taken out by her own staff, for example, instead of killing them all. Instead of introducing each character in depth, they just get a cursory glance then they get killed, Deadpool 2 style. The film zipped by, and James Gunn, without interference from a studio, it has to be said, was directed a really good DC movie. Well done. 
Okay, Graham. Uh, it's ultraviolet and very sick. <laughs> I don't think I've seen so much blood in a superhero movie before. It was bloody good fun. I yeah. like what you did there. Yeah. <laughs> Great music soundtrack, which matches the bonkers nature of the movie. As Neil just said, you know, you get country music from Johnny Cash. You get disco for for Jeff with Rick James, Super Freak. <laughs> Is that about you, Jeff? All the filler tracks are grunge from the Pixies, my sort of bands, the Jim Carroll band, the cultural abuse. I mean, it was just great. And then... A standing on its own was a song which plays as Harley escapes from prison, the wonderful I Ain't Got Nobody, which first appeared in a movie 92 years ago in 1929. It hasn't aged a day. Uh, huh. Jeff and Neil went to see the premiere of that movie as well in 1929. It was great. <laughs> ah, um, yeah, you, yeah. you were the consenting adult who got us in. <laughs> wonderful CGI and the cinematography. In fact, the film was, I think somebody else mentioned this, the film has a really distinctive style with the red and yellow at the forefront, even for the background to the end credits. Everything seems to be themed. I just loved it. I mean, the good solid leads, as everybody said, in Idris Ilba and John Cena. Excellent performance from all the newcomers and Taito Waititi uh, as the original rat catcher, Margot Robbie completely owns the character of Harley Quinn. Now when I think of the comic book character of Harley, I, I see Margot's face. I I think she is far better in this film than she is in her own Harley Quinn film. I just loved her Who's Milton gag. Hmm. <laughs> and then getting it completely wrong when she calls Bloodsport Milton. It was just wonderful. Yeah, James Gunn fully embraced the ridiculous nature of the plot using evil superheroes to do good. And so the complete former Nazi-based space starfish, walking, talking shark, all makes a weird sort of sense for a couple of hours. Everyone's evil in it. I thought King Shark's uh, Starhawk from Galaxy of the Guardians 2 was great. Um, things I really like. I really liked <laughs> TDK, the detachable kid, in the initial fight where his superpower was being mildly annoying. Huh. <laughs> it's just like, what the hell? Polka Dot Man's relationship with his mother is hilarious. That man really needs therapy, not jail. And James Gunn <laughs> tweeted a while ago, don't get too attached. And that is so true in this movie. The roster of people that died in this movie are unbelievable. Yeah, it's, I'll not name them, but yeah. There's about nine people died in the movie. If I only really had one criticism, that's two hours and 12 minutes, wee bit over long, could have done with about 20 minutes cutting from the overall length, but still lots of silly fun. And it's great to see James Gunn back in the director's chair. Right, over to me now, and people like Phil are expecting me to trash it. Well, no, just the countries. Okay, yeah, you to Talk about right. South America, yeah. I mean... James Gunn has an anarchic style and he brings it into the world of Suicide Squad in a follow-up to an original, which I'll talk about in a minute. He had complete creative control. He unleashed wit and violence, as you'd expect from one of his first and most underrated films, Slither, is on show here. It is, at times, breathtaking and inventive. So why, overall, do I prefer the first Suicide movie to this? And that's because... 
that original version has a stronger plot than Suicide Squad and more emotionally drawn characters. You understand more of Harley Quinn and you have great tragic arcs with the characters like Diablo. Without those sort of characters to anchor you, this film feels overlong, as Graham has said, so he agrees with me. And all the glitz from Gunn and what he showers it with can't hide that lack of an emotional core. Now, I'm not saying this is a bad film. It's far from it. It is really entertaining. One of its strengths is you see the world through the eyes of some of these half-crazed individual. Polka Dot Man's mother, Harley Quinn seeing flowers, not blood, during one memorable sequence. And the first half is really spectacular. James Gunn constantly wrong-foots you. The suicide mission at the beginning, the killing of the campfighters, they're all magnificent. But as the film goes on, you're expecting these twists and you start to second-guess them. Uh, spoiler alert, the death of Polka Dot Man. You can see that coming a mile off. And then you have the complete absurd where it just descends into two silliness at the end. That giant starfish. Come on, guys. <laughs> I uh, love that. Oh, yeah. yeah. But, it's hilarious. And you would say that just to be opposite to me. <laughs> yep. yep. Yeah. So let's talk about acting as everybody else has done. Margot Robbie is Harley Quinn, like Robert Downey Jr. and Chadwick Boseman. She now owns that part. You know, you just can't imagine anybody else playing that character. Actually, since seeing this film, I now can think of somebody but I'll save that for another day. Okay. Only Viola Davis comes close in the performance stakes to somebody like Margot Robbie. Final thought, underneath all the subversiveness and craziness, Gunn has inserted a clever parable about America and Cuba, a warning of American involvement and the darkest of dark characters, John Cena's The Pacemaker, a truly terrifying character from a Trumpian America. What he would have made of Afghanistan, I do not want to know. So overall, guys, it's a good movie, but it's not as good as the original, is it? Yeah, it's, it's better. It's um, better. <laughs> <laughs> the Suicide Squad. A lot of positivity from the usual suspects there. So to finish this part of the reviews, we've been privileged to view a new short film which is about to go on the festival circuit. Back in At The Flicks episode 81, we interviewed Swedish director Jimmy Olsen about his work. Now, Jimmy is back with a new short film called Notes. Philip Orris plays an unnamed man who moves into a flat on a temporary basis following a water leak in his own home. There he suffers an unexpected loss and new hope. For such a short film, Notes has a lot to say about the human condition and I think what we've all been through in the last 18 months. So, Phil, have you seen the special one this month? And if so, what did you think of it? Yes, I managed to complete all my assignments this month, Jeff. <laughs> it's okay to say piss off, you know. <laughs> hmm. um, so, yeah, so I thought Philip Oros was really good. Excellent name, by the way, as well. Um, I thought the entire emotional impact of the film relies on him and his performance, and I thought he really delivered. I loved the musical theme, and I thought the ending was a masterstroke. Although, there was a point when I was thinking, is this going to be a horror movie? <laughs> Honestly, you know, it's one of those ones where I thought it could have gone either way because of the fact that a lot of what happens is not something that's visible to us. And yeah, I, overall, I really liked it. I think the premise could quite easily be turned into a feature and that could either be a feel-good film like this 
or a horror film. That's a very fair comment. Graham? Small but beautifully formed. I mean, Jimmy Olsen has produced a, a wonderful lockdown film. It had me constantly wondering while I was watching, where is this going? So I was like, Phil, I thought, oh, no, Jeff's tricked me again. This is going to be, there's going to be some sort of bloody monster next door, and he's released it, you know, from the Phantom Zone. But no, the ending was great. It's a short tale of struggling to make sense of life. It reminded me of the phrase, what would your future self say to you now? I just really loved it. I watched it twice. Because it's so short, I just played it again and I thought it was great. Yeah, same as me. Neil? Yeah, another great, excellent short from uh, Jimmy Olsen with uh, Philip Horus. Um, he's absolutely pitch perfect, really. It's, it's, the story's set up well, the twist comes and Philip Horus changes accordingly. The scene at the end is both surprising and touching. I, I personally didn't think it was horror. I thought it might be romance with the woman next door. But, yeah, it took me by surprise. Absolutely brilliant. Simple. And like the uh, the guys have said, very clever and fantastic. Darren? I thought this was beautiful. Uh, I, I, mm. I, uh, and it's the sort of film that re- I really wish there was um, more of a platform for short movies because it's really tough to actually f- not so much find them, but basically become aware of them enough. Cause there used to be a time when you used to get these like one-off um, half-hour shows. You know, Channel 4 used to show them, you get them on BBC Two, and there's not that platform for it at the moment. And this is the sort of thing that you can do with them because I don't want to talk too much about the actual film itself. Mm. I'd like people to watch it an experience for, for, for themselves. But I just think that this is a sort of just nice little message, positive movie that with what we've been going through in the past year and a half, it's just something that I think people really need. It's got a clear message. There's nothing like weird or twisty about it. It's just got a really positive heart to it and just like a really nice message. When it would had finished... I was just basically just like left breathless, not because it was mm. a super tense movie or anything like that, but just the wow factor of of, of what it did emotionally. I, I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I'm going to echo the same as everybody else. I mean, this is a film that deals with isolation and pain, yet the payoff is both cathartic and moving. It related me to something that happened in my own family uh, over this last 18 months that played out in a way, I guess, that had the same sort of payoff. But it's it's just tremendous. I mean, Jimmy's direction and editing appeared down. It focuses on what needs to be told to make the story really effective. And as I say, that final payoff, which is too good to spoil, really will haunt you. Mm. Uh, I thought Jimmy's last film, Alive, which you can see on Amazon Prime, was brilliant. And this, to me, is even better. It's great. Just check it out when you can. That was Notes, an incredible film, which I am sure will be a major talking point in the awards season ahead. Now, normally at this point in the show, we'd be going over to Darren for this month's Dash. The films that most of us couldn't get to see, although Phil now sees this list as a sort of challenge, and Neil <laughs> and Neil sees it as sleep time. <laughs> so Darren gives us the updates we need. However, we found over the last few months that our review shows were getting longer and longer. Like Neil's time on the golf course, or Graham watching Mel movies. Not true. Just too, 
yeah, I mean, it's a great that everybody contributes to the reviews and we have some in-depth conversations. I say something, everybody disagrees with that. <laughs> For the listener, we appreciate no matter how good the content is, you want us to keep the shows a little bit shorter. We are listening and Frank... We appreciate that some of your girlfriends may not be able to concentrate for this length of time. Oh, God. So, <laughs> from this so month, much trouble. <laughs> so, from this month on, you get two review shows for the price of one. This, with all the films we all watch, well, except Phil with Brighton and Graham and Neil with any horror title. Yeah. And true. then there's Darren's Dash. Yes, Darren is now the star of his own show. The plan is to release it within a couple of days of the first review show. Let's see if we hit that target. So tune in in a couple of days' time for the upcoming new and expanded Darren's Dash. Yes, Darren will be talking about even more films. Where does he get the time to see them all? Being single. <laughs> Are you looking forward to it, Darren? What can we expect from episode one? I am looking forward to it. I'm feeling like Angel getting his own spin-off series from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I must, be, I must be the breakout character, I guess. Um, okay, so in my, in my first dash, I'm going to be reviewing two straight-to-streaming cheap action movies. I'm going to be reviewing the fifth film in another action genre franchise, which is very underappreciated and has got a political um, slant to it. I'll be looking at an Oscar-nominated film concerning um, chicken's genitalia, and I'll be looking at a film about the benefits of getting pissed. All perfectly reasonable films. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I take it I will still be introducing the films of the month selection. So out of the films reviewed, what films would you rate as your favourite of the month? I'd love to say The Last Mercenary, but I'm going to go with Notes. Wow. Graham? Um, I'm going to go with The Suicide Squad, but very close second would be Notes. Jeff? Uh, I almost went with notes, but for me, boss level. Graham's choice. And I've got to support Graham, so uh, it's boss level. Dear old Lord. For me, as much as I did actually love notes, um, my favourite was The Suicide Squad. Uh, Phil, what about you? Um, I'm also going to go for The Suicide Squad. There we go, then. Suicide Squad it is. All right. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Neil, it's great you could make it to the show given your current situation. For the (laughs) viewers out there, or even listeners, I wouldn't say Neil is destitute, but a rock benefit concert is about to be held for him in Ethiopia. (laughs) The whole country likes me. Can you say that, Jeff? (laughs) I don't think he could even get an appreciation concert going with his own family. Ain't that the truth? (laughs) Maybe Clint Eastwood could help him. (laughs) And to everyone else, thank you for listening and goodbye. And don't forget to download the new Darren's Dash Show.